Hey there, thanks for dropping in to listen to the Friday Reporter. I'm Lisa, your host, and for the last 25 years, I've worked in public affairs. And for those who don't know, that's where we take the hard questions for our clients from reporters. So to switch things up, I thought it'd be fun to flip things around. Remember that movie, Freaky Friday, where the characters traded places? You got it. That's the concept. So this time, we're going to ask reporters the questions. And we're going to have a little fun with it while we're at it. Well, thanks so much for joining us today at the Friday Reporter. We're so lucky to have Reed Wilson with us, who is a great and and longtime friend here in Washington, D.C. We've done a lot of stories together. I've I've followed his career for many, many years. And one of the reasons why I felt like Reed would be such a great guest for us today is because he is not only a terrific political reporter and has done some remarkable things in his career, he's also written a very timely and important book that I found to be a really great read right at the top of about a year ago. A year ago, I started reading Epidemic, and it really sort of, for me, helped uh, me to visualize sort of what was going on and how it was coming together and also introduced me to the super cool and fabulous Dr. Fauci, who I'm a super fan of. Uh, so, Reed, thank you so much for joining us today. Of course. This is super cool, Lisa. Well, thanks again. I really, really appreciate it. I hoped first for you to kind of talk me through how it is. So you're at the Hill now in a super senior role, but but you started out uh, long before at the Hill uh, years back, that's when I first got to know you, when I was working at the RNC, and you were writing political stuff about what was going on inside the building. Uh, so talk yeah. to me a little bit about your background. Tell me about, tell me about Reed. Uh, right. So um, I'm from the real Washington, as I like to say. I'm from Seattle. Um, I, I tell my, my Democratic friends that I'm from the real Washington and my Republican friends that I'm from the Soviet Socialist Republic of Seattle. <laughs> um, came out to, to D.C. Uh, God, literally 20 years ago now, which makes me feel that's incredibly amazing. old. Um, I, to go to school at, uh, at GW. I, I always knew I wanted to do something in or around politics, and uh, I felt like I figured out I liked writing about it a lot more than I liked practicing it. So um, I, I, right out of college, I got a job as Chuck Todd's assistant at a little publication called The Hotline back in the day. I mean, um, a great publication, yes. Oh, man, I, I love great it. Great training ground. Um, yeah, and I mean, it was it was this crazy group of people too. Uh, I had an unusually um, productive class, I suppose. So, like um, Jonathan Martin, who is now at the New York Times, was uh, started like the same week I did. Um, Mike Memoli, who covers uh, the Biden administration for NBC yep. News, um, was was my era. Um, let's see, Shira Center, who's now the political editor at the Boston Globe. Like it was just this crazy collection of you know twenty something year olds, and we show team. up at six in the morning. Morning and God, it was just great. Mm-hmm. Um, just you know, working our butts off, and it was just a ton of fun. But um, so after that, I, I went to the Hill. Uh, I went to spend some time uh, coming. I actually came back to National Journal and, and ran the hotline for three years. And what I think was probably my favorite job I'll, I'll ever have. Um, I went to the Washington Post for a little while, and I started reporting on what happens in state legislatures as opposed to uh, what happens here in D.C. Uh, and that's a beat I've been on for the last eight years now, I guess. And it's just wonderful because the states are so dynamic and there's so much happening uh, at a time when like nothing is happening in DC and everything is partisan gridlock. I started started in New Jersey politics. I love the state house stuff and I love covering state legislatures uh, just Mm -hmm. having been a staffer. So I really appreciate that. 
yeah, it's 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 a lot of fun. But um, yeah, and and so I I ended up after the post, I went to a, a small startup called Morning Consults, and you know sometimes startups work out well, and sometimes they don't. So uh, I came back to the hill after a while, and I'm I'm really glad to be here. I've been there for been here for going on five years now and it's just it's a wonderful uh, collaborative environment and um, I get to be sort of the old man in the newsroom who uh, points people to the right stories without having any responsibility for how the stories come out at the end. (laughs) Isn't that so nice and you're still such a young dude so that's so fun to be in that place. I don't I don't feel so young anymore. (laughs) (laughs) We have all aged dramatically over the last 12 months I can assure you. That's true. (laughs) Tell me a little bit, though, how it was you came to write the book that you wrote and how it was uh, to do that and go through that process while also reporting on a daily basis. Yeah. Um, so I'd written a book, but I'd, I'd helped uh, write a book before uh, with, with Chuck, um, his, his book on the Obama administration. And in the course of that, I got to know Ron Klain pretty well. And, and of course, Klain you know, is now Joe Biden's chief of staff. But uh, in the Obama administration, he uh, oversaw the American response to the Ebola outbreak in, in three West African countries um, and, and here and helping, helping the U.S. get ready. And uh, we were having lunch. I, I've always been interested in viruses uh, and and sort of the scary pathogens that might come next. Um, I was having lunch with him one day, and we just sort of started talking about his experiences. And I thought, oh, my God, this is a book in and of itself. Um, And I really delved into it because I think that the American government doesn't get enough credit for the good that it does around the world. Um, There are, you know, it's easy easy to criticize government inefficiencies, but, like, the American government helped stop the Ebola outbreak in West Africa and, and saved hundreds of thousands, maybe millions of lives in, in the process. And there are not many organizations that could do that in the world. And there are not many people uh, who are who are, are good enough and, and dedicated enough to, to go put themselves in harm's way like, you know, the 101st Airborne did when they deployed over there or the 1,400 people from the CDC who went over uh, and, and served in these three countries. And, like, that's really cool. And in, in the time of super partisanship and super polarization, like, any chance we can get to talk about the good that we do as a nation like I, f- I feel like that was important to highlight and that's really what I took away from from uh, spending a couple of years reporting on the story that's it is uh, well I was terrified as, as I'm, a, I'm a consumer of news every day but when I read books I read books that are for joy and for happiness and I had had it on my on my list of things to read not only because we've been colleagues and friends for so long but also because you know, it's, I'm always super impressed. I've always wanted to write a book myself, and I've always admired friends that could figure out how to do that. Uh, and so I, I, I pulled the trigger, especially because I was really scared when this first happened, when the pandemic first hit. You know, I have a dad mm-hmm. who's 74 years old, and I have, you know, friends and family that are high risk. And so I worry. And I read the book, and I was surprised at how much... Uh, we're told this as political people and people that work in politics is that we have to reflect on history in order to better understand what's happening today. And that's precisely the outcome I had when I finished the book is that I felt like having that information helped me be more aware and a more eyes open to sort of some of the, a lot of the positive that the, that the U S has done around the, around the globe in situations Mm -hmm. like this. So thank you for writing that. Of course. I mean, it's, let let me tell you the, the, I feel like there's a lesson in, uh, in Ebola, the, the Ebola response in sort of how to write a book, and in the Ebola response, there were there were you know, there was one guy who was in charge of the of the Liberian response, and and he looked at this not as 
one massive problem to solve, but as a hundred little solvable problems that would then contribute to the whole. And like, that's what writing a book is. It's not, I, you know, I didn't write a hundred thousand words at a time. I wrote 5,000 words in a chapter and, and 2,000 words in a vignette and, and like solvable problems that added up to a whole book. That's a great way to look at it. That's such a good way to look at it. And, and really, um, a good way for me to pivot to my next question, Reed, because as somebody who has done public affairs and communications for as long as I have, it's been almost 25 years or I guess over 20, if I hate to date myself, but it's been a while. <laughs> um, but listen, we're living in kind of a different time. Uh, the, the four years of the Trump administration certainly sucked the oxygen out of the ability to pitch just about any story in this town yeah. and around the country. It makes it very difficult for political uh, or public affairs, public relations executives in general to, to make pitches and to, and to come to someone like you and to be useful and, and to the folks on your team. And I hoped maybe you could tell me a little bit today about maybe the approaches and, and the kinds of stories or, or the things that are working, you think, uh, from the outside into the newsroom that might be mm. useful for my colleagues and friends to know so that when they come to folks like you, they can be more useful and more effective. Yeah, yeah. The the primary thing that I, I well, uh, of course, the relationships matter. And, you know, if, if, if Lisa Miller calls me, of course, I'm answering the phone. And, and that's, that's always um, the, the sort of first thing uh, that, that, gets you in the door, I suppose. Um, the second thing I'd say is, is the pitches that are the most effective are made by people, made by those who understand the reporters they're talking to, right? Like I get, I get 30, 40, 50 pitches a day on the weirdest things. I mean, the, you know, there's a, there's a national bobblehead hall of fame that, that emails every time they come out with a new Tony Fauci model or something like that. Um, you know, that's not useful. And, and <laughs> it, it's sort of like the blanket random press release from a group. Eh, I'm not, I'm just going to delete that. Thanks for um, checking in. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the, the people who call me and say, look, you've written about X, Y, and Z in the past. Um, and uh, I, I'll give you an example from a, a, a mutual friend of ours who I, I won't name just to, <laughs> because I didn't ask him permission. Um, <laughs> a buddy, a buddy of mine called me who also happens to be interested in viruses, um, called me and said, look, uh, during this pandemic, you know, one of my clients is, is this group of gyms and they want to reopen safely and blah, blah, blah. Um, you should, you should talk to them. Um, so I did. And, and it was it was intriguing because it was like in the Venn diagram of my interest. Uh, plus it had a, you know, my interest in the pandemic. Plus it had a state focus because these gyms are dealing with their local public health officials. Um, plus it was a buddy of mine. So strike one, strike two, strike three. I was interested. I think, I think I wrote something. I can't remember. Um, but it was, <laughs> that was six or eight months ago, but at That's least right. we had the conversation, right? That's right. Um, another, another mutual friend of ours uh, pitched me on a, um, a, a group that is trying to roll back uh, licensure regulations in states. That's like, you know, the, the license that you have to get to become a, a hairstylist or, or a, a you know, manicurist or something like that. Uh -huh. And in a lot of these states, like, it's just crazy. You got to get like 2000 hours of education to be a, to be a hairstylist. That's right. And, you know, it's, I'm sure it's a specialty profession, but if you get that 2000 hours in Arizona, why can't you operate in Colorado? And now that's really interesting because it's it's like across state lines. It is a, a trend that I'm starting to see a lot. Um, 
in in legislatures that these legislatures are dealing with licensure uh, things. And um, it was a, a buddy who who made a an introduction to experts in a field where experts are hard to come by. So um, in in both those cases, though, it was the the person who was pitching me was appealing to the very particular focus that I have. Mm -hmm. And that piqued my interest. It wasn't just a blanket press release or a, hey, talk to this expert about politics. Um, It was very narrowly focused and tailored to my specific interests. And I I suspect that that's probably how you get in the door uh, with a lot of people who who otherwise uh, have other stuff to write about. It takes thought. It takes a lot of thought. Other fun fact, I used to serve on the Board of Cosmetology and Hairstyling in New Jersey. Oh God. I know. <laughs> <laughs> so weird things to know. Um, thank you so much. That's exactly, I mean, that, and that's exactly what I coach my clients too. The difficulty is that a lot of times um, when you're working with a, with a team and the team needs to sort of hit all the, all the high points, certainly they want to get that press release out and they're building a list, but boy, there is something about sort of sitting down and being more thoughtful about, you know, what is it that Reed cares about? You know, what is it that he's writing about? And What's his background? Taking that extra minute or two just to get to know what it is the reporter cares about. And and so I'm glad to hear that that is still working and that is still something that's appealing to you because that retail approach, that approach, that thoughtful approach is really still what I coach clients and friends and, and young communicators as they're coming up is really, really important. Because let's face it, like you're not going to want to spend your day or your week writing something that's not of interest to you that by the way yeah. you know you as an, you as an editor but then also your your leadership at the paper aren't also going to want you to be focusing your time on so that makes a lot of sense yeah and and you know i suppose the the fundamental question in all this that both those both those two pitches uh, answered was why should i care why should why should i uh, be interested or outraged or or whatever moves me to write that story um, and in both those cases they did a pretty good job of convincing me that i should care that's so great well, i have two questions last two questions only two questions left um, and that's super helpful all of that and i appreciate that so much um, i because this is the friday reporter and because uh, this will air on friday uh, my question for you is you've got a four-year-old at home and a beautiful wife and you've got a full life, but we're still kind of stuck at home and, and staying uh, socially distant. What is it that you're looking most forward to doing this weekend? Well, this weekend is going to be pretty cold, but I got to say uh, we have discovered the breadth of, of open space in this city uh, that I, I guess I didn't really appreciate existed. Um, I'll spoil one secret uh, discovery that I've made um, for friends in DC. There's a there's a place called Colmar Manor, which is which is just over the border uh, in in Maryland. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it's a, a tiny little community of like 1,400 people, but they have this massive park uh, with a couple of awesome playgrounds. It's the it's actually a site where. Um, uh, where duels used to take place back in the in the sort of the days of duels, mm-hmm. um, and yeah, it's it's kind of crazy. Cool. But it's this awesome, huge open park. We've discovered so many cool open places uh, to to just be outside, um, and it's just absolutely wonderful. That's so good. Oh, that's a good tip, and that's going to be very useful for all of our other friends who have little people that, or big people even, just to get outside and to breathe the fresh air. Because boy, that is something that we all really need right now. Yeah. Um, and then, so my last question is who of your friends that you work with, our friends that we work with here in Washington, DC, or even because you're working with state legislatures and state reporters around the country, uh, who would be a great future Friday reporter guest? I'm going to nominate somebody from outside the beltway. I'm going to, I'm going to go with John Stanton. 
Um, John was a longtime reporter at Roll Call um, who, like, if you imagine what the Capitol press corps looks like, John looks the opposite. Um, he's big, he's bald, he's got a big beard, um, tattoos all over the place. Uh, he looks more like a bouncer at a club than a reporter. Uh, but he's had this fascinating career where he's covered everything from like from Congress to to you know illegal immigration in Mexico. Um, and now he's now he's down in New Orleans writing about a, just a fascinating city all the time. Um, he'd be he would have just a crazy perspective on on uh, life and, and politics and reporting. I remember John well. I haven't talked to him in years, and I would absolutely love to have him on as a guest. I will tell him that you recommended him, and I will keep you posted when we get that scheduled. That would be a lot of fun. Awesome. Reed Wilson, you are so kind to come and join me today to chat about all the things. And I look forward to uh, sharing this with, with all of our friends out in the, in the DC and around the country. And uh, I love you for being on. Thank you so much. All right. Thanks a lot, Lisa. And that's today's episode of the Friday Reporter. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll see you next time. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.